Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer podcast. This is Richard here again, and it is our joy to be coming to you today. Prayer is one of the most excellent means of nourishing the new nature and of causing the souls to flourish and prosper. It is a way to a life of communion with God. Encouragement from Jonathan Edwards Cultivate a habit of communion with God. This will produce that inward peace which will make you superior to your trials. The Wisdom of John Flavel You don't need me to tell you of our tumultuous times. Yet, as the Bible says, we were born and reborn for such a time as this. Fear not what we see around us. Prayer brings us the abundant life promised. Our host, Fred, would love to encourage you to a growing, biblical, dynamic, sincere prayer life. And now, here he is, Fred. Welcome to the Free Range Preacher on Prayer podcast. My name is Fred, and again, I am in the paddock, and we are talking about prayer. I am the podcast principal. In case you have never listened, welcome. And if you are back, welcome back again. Today, we are revising our signature episode. We published it for the first time a few months ago, as you might recall. And then I said there might be revisions. So here is actually the first. We published it a couple times. If you want to know the basic of the concept for a signature episode for us, you can go back and listen to the ones earlier. I think we published it twice before, but we did want an episode where new listeners can start, can jump in, and long-time listeners can review, if they like, why we do the podcast at all. I did want this episode to be sort of a standalone episode if I had one shot to kind of wrap everything up in a, in a Fred-shaped basket about prayer to help motivate God's children to either begin to pray or to pick up again if you've been struggling and starting and stopping in prayer, to pick up again with your prayer life. That being said, I am not sure if anyone would take the time to listen to this whole thing all at once, to listen to me talk this long all at once about prayer, but they might. Anyway, this is going to be longer, as you have already seen, than our normal episodes. I really didn't want to split it into two. So, when we get done with the, the very first section, I'll give you a, a heads up. And if you want, you can stop the recording and then pick it up again later. One of my favorite podcasters many times tells his audience that if they want, that they might listen to a previous episode to kind of get caught up to where they are. But then he says things like, but you're an adult, you can do whatever you want. And that's the same way here. If you can listen, I think it will be better as a whole. But if not, listen until you need to stop and then pick it up again later as you have time. One of the things that has been true that I have and that I have found to be true is, you know, I studied the Bible on my own for many, many years without reading much of anyone else. And then when I began to expand as I had time to expand my my Christian reading past just the Bible, I realized that my theology 
had grown very close to Puritan theology. And in fact, since then, a few years ago, I have called myself a Puritan, and maybe not in the classical sense, but that is how I view myself and what I believe God has taught me over the years. And one of the things that when you look and when you read Puritan theology, one of the things that they bring together, I use assimilation, but I don't think that's the right word, but the, the coalescing of their thought on the Christian life can be interwoven with these three words, duty, glory, and excellency. Over the last few years, I have found those three concepts in almost everything I have read about them or from them. So our outline, in the broadest sense, is going to be the duty, the glory, and the excellency of prayer. And we begin, of course, as they would with duty. Heavenly Father, we present this time to you. By faith, I present this time to you, that thou wilt do thy will, and take my little fish and my half loaf of bread, and make it into a meal, a spiritual meal that goes beyond what I could ever ask or think. As it is your will, make this ministry last just as long as you can use it to your glory and to help your people pray, and then end it as abruptly as needed. Holy God, help thy people listen, glean what is from you, throw away anything that is unnecessary or only from me. And I do pray with all my heart that you help your people to pray and grow in prayer until they know thee intimately and experience eternal life through prayer and study. This time is yours. Use it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the ways that will glorify you. In that name, we present ourselves to you. Amen. So just like before the first time, it is vital for transparency and for our conclusion, I do believe, to begin with two biblical truths that will certainly become precious to us as we learn to carry on our conversation with God, pour out our souls to him, if you will. The first truth you already know, but it bears repeating. I am a sinner. I'm a biblical sinner. And that means there's no justification or defense of myself. I am fallen humanity, just like the rest of us, the Bible says, and therefore a natural sinner who chooses to sin. That's what the Bible teaches. We struggle with that sometimes. My culture here in the United States really struggles with that because sometimes we equate the very good life we have with our goodness as people. And as a rule, we might admit to shortcomings or mistakes and even specifically wrong, morally wrong decisions that we make. However, it's hard to see ourselves as the Bible portrays us and that as sinners, sinners by nature and sinners by choice. We like to think of ourselves as good people who make some bad choices. That's not biblical. We are in the flesh and the mind and the spirit until we get saved, bent on selfish, self-centered acts and attitudes, period. And that's what I'm confessing to. And even after we get saved, our new inner man struggles and fights with our sinful flesh. Read Romans 7, 
And Paul will tell you that even in his redeemed state, that no good thing dwells in me. This is what he said. No good thing dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And that is true. And that is what the inner man struggles with, the outer man, the flesh, for control. And so our selfish righteousness fights with our submissive righteousness given over to God because he saved us and not we ourselves, and there's nothing we bring to the table. Now, this isn't new. In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, he was concerned over the exact same issue. His congregation, many of them, most of them, and his culture, he lived in a small town, and everybody there claimed to be religious or Christian, but they were willing to confess specific sins, but not to being sinners by nature sinners. Now, I have some help. Since the first time we did this episode, this signature episode, I found a better way to explain this concept. In fact, I love it. It's from John Owen in Mortification of Sin, his book, The Mortification of Sin. He did write a long time ago, and he was a Puritan. But they do have now a modern English version, and that's what I'm going to read from. I have both. And I like both, but I'm going to read from the, the modern English version. When he's talking about sin, he says to begin with this, If left unchecked and not consistently fought against, sin won't just strive, act, rebel, trouble, or disquiet. It will produce significant, curse, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. Again, the mortification of sin. And then he goes on to say, Sin always aims for the worst. Each time it tempts or entices, if left unchecked, it would lead to the most extreme sin of that type. Every impure thought or glance would become adultery, if it could. Every greedy desire would turn into oppression. Every doubt would become atheism, if sin were allowed to fully develop. People might reach a point where they no longer hear sin urging them to commit scandalous acts. But every rise of lust, if left unchecked, would escalate to the worst kind of wickedness. It's like the grave that it's never satisfied. And that comes from Proverbs 30, 15, and 16. That's what we're talking about when we are talking about being sinners. And I confess to that. That's the kind of sinner I am. Thank you, Jesus, for his sacrifice and his forgiveness. The second part of the introduction we used as an illustration, and I'm going to do it again, only make it a little shorter, hopefully considerably shorter, is one of my favorite shows of all time is named Doctor Who. It's a science fiction show. It's been on since 1964, and the principal characters are the Doctor, a time traveler, and his time machine, how he travels through time, named the TARDIS time and relative dimension in space. Now, again, for expediency's sake, the time machine is sentient. It has a personality. It has consciousness. In one episode, the time machine is taken out of its box and put into a person, uh, a woman named Idris, Idris. Now, there's a couple running gags about this TARDIS. One of them is, it's way bigger on the inside. It looks like a, uh, a, a large phone box. It's a police box. 
It looks like that on the outside, but when you walk into that, it is huge and has many dimensions. And as the time machine, the TARDIS in the person of Idris, is aware now of being sort of human, at least in the human body, she comes up with two all-true observations. One of them runs along with a gag for the whole show. She says, these humans, how can they be so much bigger on the inside? And then she also comments on the fact that it is lonely in that new body. Now, as children of God, as sinners, we know the complexity of being human. That image of God that still echoes through humanity, yet fallen, and the loneliness of being a fallen human being. We are never fully known by others because of our pride or our fear. We don't truly communicate everything about ourselves to others, so we are complex and lonely. Again, the fact that I'm a sinner and this truth about what it is to be a complex, lonely human will become important by the end of our little episode on prayer. And Jesus was sent to pay for our sins. He's the propitiation for our sins, and he's redeemed us. The rest of this is the duty of prayer, and we're going to go by it pretty quickly. So Jesus came, he died, he paid the price, he's our propitiation. He redeemed us to a relationship with our Creator, our Savior, the source of our internal power, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus named them in the New Testament, and that's a glory to God. And we're back in this healed relationship, which leads us to understand that the God who calls us, saved us, and called us, he calls us his children and his friends. And from that very truth, we find a lot of good news that adds on to the good news, the gospel that we have. So we're going to start there. We have faith in Christ through the gospel and a new relationship with God and eternal life. Remember, Jesus defines eternal life in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's what eternal life is. Not a long time. And we can apprehend as much as possible in our fallen flesh that eternal life by getting to know the Father in Jesus. We also know that's good news because we know that getting to know somebody, we have to talk to them and we have to listen to them. My wife and I, Kathy, were on a walk the other day. And as we were walking one way, two runners, a man and a a woman, a young man and a young woman, came running the other way. And we just heard a snippet of what they said from the time we could hear them till the time they ran past us. And Kathy said, that was a date run. They were getting together, obviously knew in their knowledge of one another. We could just hear by their conversation, they were on a date. But that's how we get to know other people. We talk to them and we listen to them. Now, there's even better news than that. God wants us to speak to him. You've heard that before on this podcast unless this is the first time, and then you will hear it again. In Proverbs 15, 8, the Bible says, and like I said, we're going to go through these quickly. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So that's great news. Good news we've already intimated. Our new inner man wants to talk to God. Second Corinthians 15, 7, you can look that up if you want. 
Paul says, we are a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that's from our spirit out. We've been, we have been given a new inner man, and we long for that relationship. Psalm 42.1 is an example of a believer and their heart longing for God. And you know that psalm. It says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. So our inner man longs for that relationship. Here's a free-fred thought, if you don't mind. I believe with all my heart, as children of God, we are often sad because our new inner man misses the true community with our Savior that we really want to have, and our flesh keeps us from talking to him enough. Which is then the next piece of good news. Prayer is in its essence just talking to God. There is a grammar. There are rules to prayer. But prayer is essentially just talking to him. One of the things I want to throw in here, too, is when we talk about the essence of something, we might ask, what's the essence of being a human baby? And every parent knows that the essence of a baby is crying. Babies cry when they're sick or when they're hungry or when they're thirsty or when they're wet or when they're too cold or too hot or hurting. They cry which leads to the next thing, thing as babies grow in their efforts to communicate. When they are ready and they start learning to talk, how do they do that? They do it by talking. They just start to copy the words and the sounds of the words that they hear. That's how babies do it. That's how baby Christians, that's how we need to, or even Christians who are struggling in prayer, just know that you're learning to talk. The good news is you don't know, have to know all the rules because we know as parents, it's wonderful when our babies start to talk. And that's even really good news because sometimes preachers, I don't think they know they're doing this, but they talk about prayer and they give the grammar and they give the rules. And very often they don't take into account where a person is at in their prayer lives. And if you are a parent, you know you hear your babies start to talk and they start to say things. I remember the very first time my daughter came to me and said, Daddy, me wub you. That may not have been the exact phrase, but it was very close to that. And what did I do? I picked her up and I hugged her and I was just so happy. What kind of parent would I have been if she would have said, Daddy, me wub you. And I said, shut up, stop. Go away until you learn how to talk correctly. Be able to pronounce the words, be able to know the syntax, even before it was a complicated thing. Know the pronouns before you come back to me and talk. How long would it have taken if that was my daughter's experience for her to learn how to talk? Maybe never. And the gooder news still is as we are learning to pray, we need to realize that God is a better father than we are. And if we can't imagine turning our baby away at their first adorable baby talk, efforts at baby talk, how in the world would we believe that our wise, loving, knowing, heavenly father would turn away our first stumbling prayers to him? He won't. In fact, you've heard this from Ryle a couple of times. You're going to hear it again and maybe even more in the future. J.C. Ryle says, It is useless to say you do not know how to pray. Prayer is the simplest act in all religion. 
It is simply speaking to God. It needs neither learning nor wisdom nor book knowledge to begin it. It needs nothing but heart and will. The weakest infant can cry when he is hungry. The poorest beggar can hold out his hand for alms and does not wait to find fine words. The most ignorant man will find something to say to God if he only has a mind. God will not turn away your prayers. We have gone further other times, and if there's a rule that you don't get or gets in the way of your praying, set that aside and just talk to God for now. Pour out your heart before Him, no matter what. You'll learn those rules. He will teach you. In time, He will teach you, and He's the boss of you. He's going to lead you into prayer. Now, how do we learn to pray? How do we begin this process? Just like babies, we start to pray. We start to talk. We start to use our language to God. Babies use their language, as we talked about earlier. We start to pray, period. That's how you have to do it. We'll never get better at anything if we don't start that thing. If your child came to you and said, Dad, Mom, I want to be a great baseball player. I think I'll read 200 or 201 books about baseball. And then when I'm 20 years old, I'll go out and try out for the Yankees and I'll be a baseball star. No, you won't. You become a good baseball player by starting to play, by practice, practice, practice. You fail, you fall, you drop the ball when you're trying to catch it. You strike out 10 times in a row, and then you get up to bat again, face the pitcher, and take your swings. It's the same way about prayer. You start praying in reference to the young couple who were running the other way from us, he might be saying, oh, I have a young attraction to this young woman. I'll go out and marry her. No, you won't. You go running and you share stuff and you share good stuff to begin with, only the good stuff. And then when you get to know each other, you share more and more. Those are all the duty. That's the duty of prayer, talking to him in a quick summary. And we've spent four years on this. So there's a lot of stuff in our library about that. But a quick summary is this. We are in a growing relationship with God. That relationship, knowing him, means that's eternal life. And what it means is we listen, read his word, we speak to him, pray. God wants to hear from us. We want to be known by him and talk to him. So we start and then we commit ourselves to growth in prayer. That is the duty of prayer. Talking to God, listening to God with the natural built-in bonus of abundant life wrapped up in all that. Here at this point, we have been at this for a little while. And so if you'd like, you can stop here and begin again. If you can, I would encourage you to go on. One of the earlier things we mentioned in the, in the podcast is that prayer starts out as a discipline. We'll talk about this more later, not in this podcast, but we'll talk about it more later. It starts out as a discipline or duty, as the Puritans would say. And then as we practice and pick up and stop and start and struggle and start to develop this consistent conversation with our Savior, it becomes the best part of our day. And that is part of the glory of prayer. So we're going on from the duty of prayer to the glory of prayer. And there is a glory in our daily conversation with our Savior. And it, we, it begins when we start to understand the precious gift of being in his presence. And the glory of prayer is as we 
realize we are grow growing, getting closer to him. We are enjoying his presence more and more. We start to realize that the reason for our prayers merges with the result of our prayers so that they're the same thing. What motivates, motivates us to pray gets merged with the results of our prayers and they become the same. We pray asking God to glorify himself through our prayers. And we, our delight is magnified when we see what he does, no matter what the answer is. He's glorified in the answer. He's glorified that he listens and he glor he's glorified that he answers, even if it's not exactly what we wanted when we started to pray. And as we worship, his glory grows as we confess. His, his glory grows as we intercede. His glory grows as we give him thanks. His glory grows and we are glorying in him grows. It gets more and more satisfying. We mentioned before the ultimate end of why we pray is the glory of God. And that becomes the ultimate motivation in our prayer. The reason we pray and the results of our prayers. And Jeremiah, the prophet, is an extreme but key example of our apprehending this. Jeremiah, you know, is one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. He preached in Jerusalem for about 39 years. 40 years, he was the prophet whose job was to preach the impending judgment and captivity of the people of God in Jerusalem all the way from their kings to their prophets, false prophets, most of them, to the people. They were all unfaithful to the God who saved them and brought them up from the land of Egypt. Jeremiah had a tough gig, we might say these days. And Jeremiah did see the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and his prayers were directed to God for this very end. In fact, God told him several times, in his book, Quit Praying for These People. And Jeremiah's vision, his seeing, his witness to the fall of Jerusalem caused him great sadness. And in fact, so sad was he that there's a book called Lamentations, which is his sadness expressed at the fall of Jerusalem. Now, I want to give you just a few things so you understand how Jerusalem, God's people, and Jeremiah felt. Lamentations 1.1, 1, 1, how lonely sits the city. Verse 8 of Lamentations 1, Jerusalem sinned greatly, therefore she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Verse 18 of 1, the Lord is righteous. For I have rebelled against his command. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my pain. My virgin and my young men have gone into captivity. And that, of course, is a personification of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, Jeremiah continues in lamentation to give God the glory and to make it clear that this is from God and nowhere else. Chapter 2 verse 8, the Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying. He has caused rampart and wall to lament. They have languished together. 17 of that same chapter, chapter 2, 
and you need to listen. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from the days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Just like in the book of Revelation, everyone's going to know where this judgment and justice is coming from. One more passage I just want to let you know from chapter 3. Jeremiah's personal feeling in this, if this wasn't enough that we've read so far. Chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. Verse 16 of 3. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cover in the dust. Truly a lamentation. If you've never read it, read that book. It is sad and sorrowful. Yet the duty of his soul was to pray and pour his heart out before God. And the glory of it is that we see his prayers like ours merge. And it's not just duty, but it's glory in his will. Because he says in chapter 3, and you might be astonished with everything you've heard so far. I was the very first time this the Holy Spirit brought this to my attention, which was after I had read it many, many times. Jeremiah says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. What? He's dragging you through the gravel. But Jeremiah goes on, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Perhaps, prayerfully, you have heard that song, that hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow or, or turning with thee. What astonishing good news in the midst of the bad news of this lamentation. But we see that God did this, this justice, for his own glory. I've mentioned it before. The judgment of God brings as much glory as his goodness and love does. And if you don't believe me, read the book of Revelation. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Jeremiah worshiped God in the midst of his sorrow. He goes on in verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. The glory of prayer is getting to know God. And Jeremiah knew God so well that even in his lamentation for judgment, he knew the judgment was coming, but in it he saw the glory of God. He also saw, if you didn't pick up on it, I'll repeat it, the hope, the loving kindness, the unfailing compassions, the faithfulness, the goodness and the God of salvation, Yahweh. That's what that means, his name. I am who I am. I'm the God of salvation. Jeremiah saw that even in the midst of his sorrow. So we find the glory of a prayer. It goes beyond the duty, and we understand God, and we give him glory even in the toughest of times. And we gave this hierarchy early on. We will go through it again. The ultimate reason and result of our prayer is the glory of God. And then we have our chief motivations. The ultimate, we said, is obviously the ultimate. The chief is the next level of our motivation and the results of our prayers. 
and that is we are conformed to his will. Prayer conforms us to the will of God, and we look again to the extreme. A true knowledge of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit brings him glory. We saw that with Jeremiah in the unfolding of his plan in God's plan, but it is also his glory as we are conformed to his will. We, we become part of what he's doing, and our joy is in, increased. Our extreme example is Job. In the midst of his trial, unimaginable trials, everything taken away, most of us, I don't understand this fully. I've never been tried the way he had been tried, and prayerfully, none of you will ever be tested to the limit that he was tested. But in the midst of that, losing all his stuff and losing all his children, Job 1.20 says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. He was sorrowful. He was mourning. Back to the verse, I'm sorry. And he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is no way. It's not possible for us to minimize Job's pain and the trial he was in. The devil, in both of the waves he was allowed to, he went to the very limit to make Job miserable and sad and not trust God anymore. Again, Job, in his loss of security, his, the loss of his family, the loss of his help, a strained marriage, all to the max, we might say, in these days. He then said to his wife, because she said, just curse God and die. But this is what Job responded to her. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He was in the midst of God's will for his life. He did struggle, but he was brought in conformity to that. He did struggle. You and I struggle. We all struggle with God. A few days ago, this verse caught my eye. It's found in John 12, 34, and I hadn't planned on this, but I think it fits. Jesus has gone through his whole testimony. He's gathered a whole bunch of people around him who want to follow him for various reasons, some sincerely and some not. And then he begins to tell them that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And they knew that meant crucifixion and death. And so they started saying, well, listen to what they say. 1234 in John, the multitude therefore answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And as I read that again, I believe the Holy Spirit brought it to my attention. As with Job, those people struggled. As he struggled to understand God in his hardship, hardships, they struggled to understand why the Messiah had to leave. And I truly believe, after that verse jumped out at me, that we get saved with everything that means, and we spend the rest of our lives through everything that he takes us through, in everything that he takes us through, asking, who is this son of man? Because if you don't know it now, you will know it the longer you live in Christ. Is our lives and our God, they are in no wise what we ever thought they would be. He's, he's as Isaiah says, far above us. We don't understand his ways but we're compelled to know him and to love him and to be brought into his will. And that's the second thing that brings glory to our prayers as we are conformed to his will. 
Job, in my view, anyway, is at his lowest in chapter 31. He does struggle. To me, this is the lowest he ever got. He's talking, he's justifying himself in the whole chapter. And he says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. And the indictment which my adversary has written, surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Wow, all this was in the defense of himself in his self-righteousness. And I am telling you that when the Holy Spirit brought that to my attention a few years ago, I thought, why didn't the Lord strike him dead right there? I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Really? We're going to see in a little bit after God talked to him how Job approached God. But for now, this is where the result and reason of our prayers not only mold together that we glorify him for his will, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done in heaven on earth as it is in heaven. His name is high and lifted up. They meld together for the glory of God. They meld together to conform us to do his will and we glorify him even in our grief in doing his will. And then the other chief reason is through our prayers and the Bible study, in knowing him, we experience eternal life right here and right now. Everything we can apprehend in the flesh, we experience. And now when we talk to him, we are satisfied and we glorify God, even the way Jeremiah did in his own sadness and confusion. We glorify him in our brokenness when we, like Job, say, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord when he worshiped there. Remember, it says he worshiped. But we also glorify him because our souls know him and his glory. We see him and know him like never before, even in the hardest times, as we learn to know him. And our motivation and the result of our prayers are our apprehending eternal life. We take comfort in him because we know him more and more for who he truly is and who we truly are as sinners. I mentioned a couple of things at our introduction that I said would become important at the end. And one of those things is that I am a sinner. Jeremiah was a sinner and Job was a sinner. And everybody who we will reference in a few minutes were, were sinners, just like us. And just like Owen said, they were bent on their sin and the sin that carries it as far as we will let it carry us if we don't fight against it. We'll do the worst of any category of sin. That's the kind of sinners we are. And that makes prayer precious because he says, come into the very throne room. You have access in Hebrews to the very throne room of God and talk to me and we glorify him for that. And then here is where the next two come into mind as well, because we talk to, if you'll remember, the essence of being a baby is crying. We add to this, Idris, the TARDIS, being put in a human body, understanding the complexity, bigger on the inside, and the loneliness of being human. 
we bring all those things together and our sorrows, even our general sorrows, and there is a truth that's a glory to God, but then melds into the excellency of prayer, the excellency of our lives, understanding and knowing him becomes married as we look at the fact that the essence of being a baby is crying. And there is a truth that every loving parent knows. Sometimes we hear our babies cry and we rush in to see what they need. What are those tears there for? Why are you sad, my little baby? And we find when we get there that they're not tired. They don't want to go to sleep. They're not hungry or thirsty or hurt or wet. They're just crying loudly and long. So what do we do, mom and dads? We pick them up. We hold them close. We hug them. We talk softly to them. We coo to them. We tell them that we love them, even though they don't understand English yet or whatever language we speak. We tell them that they are in our arms and they will be in our hearts forever. And we just hold them close. We pull them tight. And what happens? They settle down. They stop crying. They may not go to sleep. They may just lay in our arms, quiet, in our loving arms. And they're just calm, close to their father, close to their mother. Some of the most poignant hours in my whole life came from quieting my babies in all their complexity, in all their loneliness in the crib, couldn't express in words what they needed the most, but what they needed the most was to be close to their father or mother. What a precious, loving, peaceful time of contentment in a word, abundant life in those moments, and we'll know those with our God for eternity. That's what makes it precious as we know our sin. God still draws us close. And so the glory of our prayers turns into the excellency of a Christian life, a life lived in intimacy with God, the abundant life that God promised. We know him more and more intimately through prayer and his word. And it's only in that intimate growing knowledge of God that we can say with Joseph, and as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You'll see the reference in the notes. Or to be able to cry with Abraham. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. God had just promised him the son of promise. And Abraham knew him well enough to say, Why can't this, this boy that I can touch and see, why can't he live before thee? And when God said no, then Abraham and Sarah went on to do the one thing they needed to do to have another baby, even at more than 100 years old for Abraham. Jacob, Israel, the other name for Israel, only when we know God more intimately. And it took Jacob a long time to get there. Can we say, as he said, then Israel said, it is enough. He's saying this, God, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. A long time for Jacob to settle into saying to God, it is enough. He said that, by the way, in Genesis 45, 28. You'll see that again in the notes. David, one of my favorite parts in all of Scripture, one of my favorite prayers, David, in paying for his sin, which he brought the judgment on himself, he even said, this rich man who stole from this poor man, he's going to pay four times. So God said, okay, you can pay four times. That's your judgment. David gets chased out of the city by his son. One of the priests, Zadok, brings the ark out with 
David. David knows this is the city of God, Jerusalem. So he tells Zadok this, and this is in Second Samuel. He, said, he tells Zadok this, Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. In the deepest sincerity, David knew God so well, he said, take the ark back. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, he'll bring me back. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. God gets the glory. That's eternal life. Trusting fully in God, no matter what the future might bring. Being fully submissive to the holy God of the universe. That's eternal life. That is the excellency of the Christian life. Only in knowing God again intimately can we say those things. The Father in the New Testament, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Job again, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Just remember that one as well. And we didn't get to the end when we talked about Job and his being in the will of God and his being conformed to the will of God after God chewed him out. This is Job's response. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask of thee, and do thou instruct me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. God got the glory. Job got the pain. Job got to walk in his own pride. And and you know what? You can't tell me. Again, read this verse for yourself. Job 42, 1 through 6. Read that passage for yourself. You can't tell me he wasn't happier after all this than he was before. Because if you go back and read chapter 31, you will see how much effort Job had to put in in his own self-righteousness. Then after God rebuked him, he knew he knew things too wonderful for him that he didn't know, and he repented. And he was happier in his repentance. Moses, he says, there is none like God, of the God of Jerusalem, who rides in the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Another great hymn. That's the excellency of the Christian life knowing that we are in his everlasting arms. Even in, when we cry and don't know why and can't express ourselves, he pulls us close into those everlasting arms. And he says, I love you. You're with me for eternity. One of my favorite passages, you know this, Jesus himself says it, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. My beloved brethren, the Christian life is a yoke, but it's a light yoke. It's a yoke under which we find rest. We see his humble and gentle heart, and that's the call. Hebrews 12, the peaceful fruit of righteousness only comes after we have been disciplined in the will of the Father because he loves us. David again, Psalm 31, But as for me, I trust in thee, O Lord. I say, thou art my God. 
my times are in thy hands. Only the intimate knowledge of God our Savior can we say, my times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies. Verse 16, he says, make thy face shine upon thy servant. Save me in thy loving kindness. Paul, as you have seen, as we have talked about before, says, I know whom I have believed, and he will take care of and basically, he will take care of everything I entrust to him. That, my brothers and sisters, is the abundant life. Only in that abundant life can we say that. Later, Paul will say, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Some of us are getting close to death. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's abundant life. Not that there wasn't a fight, not that there weren't failures, not that we understood everything because we have to walk by faith, but we know that there is a crown of, a crown of some sort awaiting us. Lastly, eternal life, the excellence of our prayer life results in and is the motivation for us as we read Paul in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Beloved, I hear a lot of noise about the abundant life. I have heard much clamoring for what people thought was the abundant life, but it's not. It's not at all. Most of what I've heard for the abundant life is not at all what God means when he says abundant life. In confession, again, transparency, I have called out way too many times in my life for things that were not only not abundance, but not even truly life. I've asked for stones many times in my life, and he's never given them to me, except maybe a couple of times in judgment. But what I can tell you as a fellow child of God, what you have heard in totality as far as prayer is concerned, is what he has done for my soul. He brought me through baby talk, made for me the desire that prayer was a discipline. We'll talk about that later. But he's brought me the abundant life, even in trials, even in brushes with death, even in loss of reputation for many people. But I love this Christian life. And I love it because I know it is from God and I know him more intimately. And if you would like to test my word, here's how you do it. Immerse yourself in the word of God and cultivate a daily conversation with him and pour your heart out before him on a continual basis. He will show you one way or another, I think, what true abundant life is. In your conversation with him, he will come in and dine with you and your soul will burst with joy, as Peter says, inexpressible and full of glory. Thank you, Jesus. Beloved friends, hopefully you got all the way through this. We are commended to the immortal, invisible, only wise and loving God, our Creator. Brethren, let's learn to pray. And as we learn to pray, let's pray for one another. Amen.